In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And now our second year of the Radically Genuine podcast, we are finding our voice. That voice is the voice of our community, innovative research or new approaches, the connection of our physical health to our mental health, and unfortunately, the voice of those who have been harmed by the system. These stories of recovery are inspiring. Their personal experiences may help you find therapies that work. On today's podcast, we welcome Emmy-winning TV producer Jesse Zook Mann for a Radically Genuine Conversation. So we received a great article from one of our listeners. I'm going to call him uh, Dr. Wayne. Dr. Wayne is a loyal listener. Thank you, Dr. Wayne. Thank you, Dr. Wayne. It's an editorial written by Dr. Shamini Wheeler. Uh, if you're not familiar with her locally, she's a pediatrician, child advocate, and is known to be vocal against the vaccine mandates, uh, which is, uh, I'd love to have her come on. Actually, I think she would have an interesting perspective because she continues to be outspoken uh, in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, in her editorial, she provided some examples from the late 1800s of those who challenged the accepted beliefs uh, of the time. Uh, some of them were rejected by their colleagues. They were called crazy. And a few of them were even physically removed from their positions. And, I know uh, the feeling. And this, is, this actually happened <laughs> to, to Dr. Wheeler when she was outspoken against the, the, the mandates. I believe she uh, had her access revoked from a local hospital here. And um, the whole purpose of her editorial was to really talk about the importance of, of discord in the scientific process. Uh, the examples she used are so commonplace. Well, now, like hand washing, hand washing, exactly. Yeah. So, like before surgery, or like when uh, a woman's about to go into labor, that the simple act of washing your hands really uh, improved the outcomes. Um, and osteopathy. So these late eighteen hundreds, this transition of all these things that we really truly didn't understand led to um, what is just progress. And um, and when that voice is really tamped down, that trust is damaged. And she wants this to continue to happen because by speaking out, that's really how this progress happens. And there's a line in, in the article, it says, you know, history has shown that truth cannot be silenced or hidden. And uh, we've just completed this first year of this podcast. And I heard one of the listeners call uh, Roger and I as the, the red pill and the blue pill brothers. And uh, Roger never watched The Matrix. Have you watched it yet? I was just no. I yeah, but he read Alice in Wonderland. My, my goodness, yeah. So, uh, if you're not familiar, Roger, the uh, the red pill and the blue pill is from The Matrix, and basically, if you have the choice of taking the red pill or the blue pill, the red pill means you have this willingness to learn potentially like unsettling or life changing truths by taking it, or you can remain content and ignorant and take the blue pill. I, I don't know which one he was referring to in terms of the I red do. pill, blue pill. I know exactly. Shut up, Shut up Dangerously Kelly. naive. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say over the course of this year, there has been a number of conversations in this room 
Um, our last uh, episode, 42, was one that was eye-opening to me in terms of the things I just truly didn't understand that um, I thought is really important for people to listen to. And it just really stresses the importance of more voices, more conversations, reaching out to the community, and people being heard. And, uh, and we have a great guest today. Roger, why don't you do some introduction? Yeah, I've been really interested in trying to discover independent thinkers. I think what's also important to me as a clinical psychologist is the lived experience of, of individuals. And I was lucky enough to connect with somebody through Twitter who has a, a pretty large platform. And that platform is large because of a couple of reasons. One is his uh, his accomplishments as a, uh, as a as a director, as a filmmaker, as a producer. He's an award Emmy award-winning producer, uh, incredible artist. Um, but I think what, find, what we find really captivating about him is his life story and his ability to engage with those who've experienced prescribed harm in the psychiatric community, who himself has experienced what it's like to undergo psychiatric diagnosis and care. And his independence and passion right now as a mental health advocate really stands out. Uh, folks, I do want to welcome uh, our guest, Jesse Zook Mann. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. Thank you very much, Dr. McFillin. Um, yeah, it's Zook like Cook, or you could just call me Jesse Mann. Um, I appreciate it. I don't know how, so the other thing about that red pill, like that's also like a, you know, at least, you know, the kids on the internet, they, they can, uh, you know, get into, you know, they use the, the word, the red pill for like the far right stuff. I want to be clear on that. I'm not about that. We got neo-Nazis down here in downtown. <laughs> I'm not, I'm Jewish. I am not, you know, I'm not red pill. I'm not taking over the Capitol. Uh, I just want to make that pretty clear. Yeah, we're not that uh, that far right wing uh, either. This was purely a reference to the Matrix, so yeah, okay. we are not that. <laughs> Although I do, I do like your your banner in the background. Nobody knows anything like that was a perfect tie-in to uh, to what I am learning uh, over the last year. Yeah. So yeah, that's it. It's like it's it's a it's a it has a few different. Um, it means a few different things. One, it's a it's an episode of one of the early Sopranos, which is like. You know, when the cops come, nobody knows anything. And it's also, uh, it's like a Hollywood saying. I, I think it was like the right, the producer of Mash, where they, it was asking, he was like ask, being asked, "How do you make a successful series?" And he's like, "Nobody knows anything." And then, of course, <laughs> I'm in grad school, where all of the students think they know all of the things. So I actually put it right up there because I'm like, get yeah, some humility, people. Like everybody, what every person needs in care and recovery is going to be different is unique you don't know and if you're walking in to help somebody like you already have the answers you're going to hurt people so um that's that's where i'm coming from well said yeah profound statement um i i often say we don't know what we don't know and that humility is really important also in the field and you're you're studying to be a, a therapist from what i understand the one thing that you learn is uh, you never meet the same person twice and yeah, I I like that. Yeah, there's this uh, in the reductionist kind of approach to understanding mental health problems. It's like you try to simplify it. Um, you try to create diagnoses that are 
are rather restrictive and in categories, and then you develop a, a, a treatment as if it can be applied to everybody. So that's a good kind of segue into your story. First, I want to, you're a, you were a, I think you're a New Yorker, aren't you, by, by birth, and you grew up in New York, and I know um, what you're probably best known for is uh, that docu- documentary, um, Punk Jews, you know, which is the, the, the culture and community in New York. What brought you out to Pacific Northwest? <sighs> so I've been back and forth my entire life. My mother is from uh, Kirkland, Washington, and um, I was living and working in New York. Um, and after I got sick that, you know, I just needed somewhere to go. It, you know, if you can't work full time, it is hard to make New York City work for you. Um, so it was just a place. Uh, it was just a place to go when I needed a spot to go. And um, yeah, I'm working on getting out of here. Okay. And uh, so can you take us a little bit, the trajectory of your career before we get a build up to uh, one of the more challenging, difficult times in your life? You, uh, you were... You became very successful and um, were involved in a, a lot of projects that I think our, our our listeners would be, you know, very much knowledgeable about. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Um, yeah, sure. So, I mean, I actually came out here to like, I, I always loved the Pacific Northwest. I grew up spending my summers out here um, as a kid. So I was a New York City kid who got to play in the woods um, in, in Washington. Um so I always wanted to come out here um, as a little kid because you're like, if you grow up in Queens, it's like, oh, of course you want to be in the forest and where you had your summers and the fun. Um, so I actually came out here after college and then I realized, you know, this is a small town. So I ended up going back to New York City um, and yeah, ended up, you know, long story short, working on a lot of television shows. I worked uh, I had a staff job uh, with NBC for a while. That's what I won the Emmy for, which is a, uh, a documentary series called My First Time, where we followed first-time Olympians um, in their preparation for um, the Beijing Games. Um, I did some of the early uh, television work for Vice when they were getting off of the ground. It kind of helped create the prototype that became that HBO show. Before it was on HBO, it was on MTV and... Um, one of my jobs was to help translate what they were doing um, online as kind of these niche cult documentaries and translate that for television. So um, that was that. And, you know, in that work, I was burning the candle at both ends. I was on the road constantly, easily 60 hours a week, a lot of times 80, 90. I did a couple of days that were like literally three days in a row where I had not slept. Um, you know, that was not uncommon at all. So, uh, and then as I started working for Vice and, you know, I started getting in, in more interested in um, crime and more high stakes uh, shoots, um, it was a really stressful time. I did one piece where we covered uh, these bandits in Moscow. It was like Russian mafia guys. This guy, uh, his name is Vitaly Diomeshka, um, and he was known for creating like a, a DIY underground like video series reenacting all of like the people he had killed. So oh, wow. uh, I ended up like going to Moscow and people think the Cold War is like now again. It was then 10 years ago when we were doing this shoot. 
it was no joke. No one spoke English. You could not speak English on the street. If you moved more than like one town, you had to register with the local police. It was no joke. And so, yeah, we ended up like getting uh, these guys ended up taking our passports. They ended up like intimidating with guns and they threatened to kill us. So I was like one day in the office. We did another <laughs> one where one day one another one where we were uh, in the West Bank in Palestine, um, you know, embedding with Palestinian car thieves who were stealing cars out of Jerusalem and then taking them to uh, the West Bank to race, uh, you know, um, and then just and then just like dealing with shoots that were like a lot less exciting. But, you know, just you don't you didn't have the time to eat. You didn't have the time to sleep just over and over and over for years. Um, and on top of that, I was like survived two natural disasters. Just 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 uh, just moving around so much. One in the Rocky Mountains in a landslide. Um, so on and so forth. It was like a very high octane, you know, existence. And after a while, I just couldn't keep keep it up i couldn't do it anymore with that life and uh yeah i ended up really depressed really exhausted i ended up with um a bipolar diagnosis which in and of itself i didn't have a problem with but i saw one really bad psychiatrist who ended up giving me 12 drugs at one time and i was just i did not know which way was up and my body did not work my my would fall regularly yada yada um, I tried to go back to work once and there was like, and then I ended up in the hospital again because I had one psychiatrist who gave me way too much clonip and he said, Oh yeah, you're stressed. I was doing this documentary where it was like, it was a, a sizzle reel. It was like a, a, a you know, a, like a pilot for a reality television show, uh, that involved a famous chef and, uh, betting on horse races. And in that during that shoot, I saw how I saw a horse die and I saw people abusing these horses and I was stressed out. So I called the psychiatrist. He said, Oh, take as much clonopin as you want. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that, then I was like really high on clonopin. I talked, I called my old psychiatrist. He's like, Oh no, you can't do that. Stop taking it. Go to the hospital. They reduced my clonopin in half. I started like having all types of issues and my health was not the same for many, many years after that. And, um, yeah. All right, so let me back up a little bit here because I think this story is uh, very familiar to people out there who listen to this podcast. It's familiar to me as a, as a psychologist and what I begin to evaluate. It starts with life events. You're under stress. You're sleep deprived. The nature of your work puts you constantly on the go. You're not taking care of yourself with sleep, with food. You're under stressful conditions. There's a lot of pressure. Eventually, your body just breaks down and and it, there's, there's an exhaustion about it. And it's almost as if your body needs to recover and you go into this kind of depressed emptiness state. What led you to first seek out psychiatry in the first place? I, I mean, I don't think we knew any better. I first I started finding a, a therapist uh, in Manhattan she recommended the first psychiatrist that I saw. He wasn't that bad. You know, I think he was like, you know, he wasn't going to give me a dozen drugs. I, you know, I think like the first person I saw was okay. Uh, and then, you know, it, we realized it was going to take some time for recovery. So my family said, maybe you should stay with us in San Francisco. And I met a psychiatrist on the plane from uh, New York City to San Francisco 
she was a a consultant on a documentary that you may have seen about suicide. Um, and I said, oh, this person's like knows production, knows my business. I could trust this person. And my life was just not the same after that. And even when I called to get my in my record to figure out what the hell happened to me, she would not return my phone calls. Mm. Um, just totally cut me off. Uh, so Jesse, you said that you, you were diagnosed with bipolar and you accepted that initially. I think in, in one of the articles I read about you, it was that diagnosis of bipolar two. Is that accurate? And to, I, I don't know if our, our listeners know the difference between bipolar one and, and bipolar two. Yeah, I don't. Why don't you explain it? Yeah, but bipolar one is traditionally what would be identified as manic depressive illness, and it would occur in a, in a small percentage of the population. Um, and often, you know, if you look historically, there's, it's often one episode. You know, it's, it's a manic episode or a depressive or some mixed episode, but with a high recovery rate. And since we started treating these with um, new types of drugs that have been brought to, to the market, a couple things have happened. Diagnostic expansion is one. So there's the addition of what's called bipolar two. Some people refer to it as bipolar light. From a psychologist's perspective, um, it's very concerning because it's almost like an umbrella uh, diagnosis so that anyone experiencing emotion dysregulation in some way, regardless of cause, can be provided that label. So there's a, the word of hypomania and depression and uh, kind of like a mixture of, of the two. It's not really clearly defined. We see it widely applied to too many people regardless of the circumstances. And one of the things that we see in the community is it tends to be disproportionately applied to people who experience their emotions intensely naturally. And those who tend to experience their emotions intensely naturally can be those who are artists and create creatives, you know, people who use their emotions to drive creative work. And so your, your story, I wanted to, I don't want to um, make assumptions here, but what led you to like be okay with that diagnosis? And do you, I, do you identify with that? Was there validity there for you to accept that diagnosis? So, yeah. So, Overall, yes, I do accept and I do think it's helpful. I'll back up a little bit. So the person who got me off all of those meds was this, was another psychiatrist who was a researcher uh, at a major institution who was on the cutting edge, who got who sent me to a naturopath, who helped me find my way. And in doing that, I found a lot of other people who had similar stories, similar diagnoses, who uh, I think like me, didn't necessarily agree with the prescription, but the conceptualization of bipolar disorder or, I mean, now there's like un bipolar disorder, uh, was it undifferentiated, like general bipolar disorder? <laughs> um, it is helpful because the things that like help me and a lot of people uh, regulate um, are similar. So growing up, I very often would get super, super excited in the middle of the night and stay up and rearrange my furniture and like do stuff like that and was, you know, streaking through house parties in college and so on and so forth. That's normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should ask my friends if it was normal. They would not say so. <laughs> All right, wait, wait, 
were were you were you on any drugs at that time when you were or were you intoxicated very often i was not okay very often i was not and it's been since i was very young um but regardless i don't know how much i think for me uh, and, and becoming a mental health professional, I think people need to be able to choose if that conceptualization is helpful for them. And the reason it's helpful for me is because the rhythm, the routine, the diet, uh, the meditation, like really the, the ultra self-care that a lot of people with bipolar lean on, that works for me. And it works yeah. for a lot of other people. So just to say, okay, there's something going on. You could call it sensitivity. You could call it an artistic mind that I need to be more careful with myself, regulate myself, take care of myself, work out every day. But these are the things that help me. I don't really care what the label is. Um, but I do think yeah. it's, it's helpful for people to find each other. Okay. Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting perspective that I think I have to be able to to ponder a little bit. I I tend to think that there is danger with the label because of the origins of it, as if it's a discrete and identified medical illness that can be treated most often with a pharmaceutical. What I'm hearing from you is that label helped you understand that you can experience your emotions in a way that can become problematic for your life and that you have to do certain things to, to manage that, which I totally agree with because almost everything you, you just spoke about could be widely applied to a lot of people who are trying to manage, you know, their own emotions. It's a health routine in so many ways, and it has real positive effects. There's a discipline to it, right? I mean, yeah. Jesse, man, can you tell us your how you discovered that and your, I don't know, I would imagine it was a series of, of trying things and finding out what worked for you. What was that journey like? So I'll tell you, and this is why I become defensive of psychiatrists, because the person who made me find it was a psychiatrist. She, my psychiatrist literally said, take the consult with a naturopath. I don't know what else to do for you except get you off drugs. You know, so wow. you got to find to know. Th- I yeah. need to know the name of that person. <laughs> I need to know how to find that person. Maybe offline. We need to get them on the offline. <laughs> we have to get that person on the podcast because I, I, I probably... I don't want to jump in here too, too much, but I do believe that psychiatry can play a critical role um, in, the, in the healthcare field. It's just 98% of them aren't going to do what that psychiatrist did in that, in that recommendation. So we're, we're looking at the, the minority, probably the best of the best, who's probably on yes. cutting edge of yes. understanding nutritional psychiatry yes. and gut microbiome. And we're trying to get these people on our, on our podcast. Yes, But I agree with you. I think if, if we defend psychiatry is a healthcare profession, then we can push forward the evolution of the science. Um, but 98% of psychiatry is kind of performing from this old reductionist model and it's creating a lot of harm. And the harm was done to, to you. Um, I don't want to gloss over the 12 medications you were on because that's an important piece of this story. We were just going to jump to the recovery. (laughs) I'm I'm interested in the recovery, but we can talk about the 12 medications. I I think we all are, but (laughs) I think we need to understand what life is like when you are drugged in in that way and how you escaped it. And like at one point when you were working all those hours, were they just basically the solution was, well, just take more, just take more, just take or try something different with medication. I could not work when I started taking that. Okay, stuff. all right. <laughs> I was done. You were done. Um, 
Yeah, what is it like? I don't know. Do you guys, do you know Alan Watts? Yeah. He's a philosopher. So the only yes. thing that made sense to my brain was Alan Watts. <laughs> like, I, couldn't even, <laughs> I couldn't even watch television because it didn't make any sense. I was in another, I was in another plane of existence <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember being in therapy and thinking like, and I remember saying, I can't tell if I'm awake. Um, you know, there was like, uh, I mean, I, I remember being super dizzy. I remember falling until like really until about three years ago. Um, I would just be at the, the grocery store and even like a couple of years after I stopped everything, my, my muscles would just become super weak out of nowhere. Um, so yeah, it was weakness, fatigue, uh, exhaustion, not being able to tell if I was awake, uh, you know, uh, not being able to understand like, like the very rudimentary elements of like a narrative, like someone telling me about their day wouldn't make any sense. Um, yeah, it's scary. And then you're like, how do you have a life like that? What does your family do? You know, what, you know, you, you go from someone who has TV shows on, on cable every week, you know, running around the world. And then all of a sudden, like you can't get out of bed. It's tough. How long were you in that state before you found this, uh, this psychiatrist that helped? I mean, it was, it was definitely not like a clear before and after it took a long time, at least five years. And then, I mean, I'm still dealing with, I'm still feeling it. I think, you know, it's hard to tell. It's really hard to tell because then, then, then I'm dealing with like the effects of just being isolated for a decade. And what will that do for you when you try to reintegrate and see into society and restart your life? Like, um, it's hard to tell exactly what is what and what, but I could tell you I was off all, I think I stopped taking just about everything except for like a nutritional, uh, dosage of lithium sometimes. Um, maybe five years ago. It's when I finally got off benzodiazepine. Was there, a, was there guidance in the tapering process? Was there any kind of science behind that? Uh, I know a lot of people struggle with the withdrawal reactions to getting off drugs. How were you guided in that? Yeah, I had, so I had a very good uh, naturopath who helped me with my psychiatrist. And yeah, I, I wanted to go too fast. That probably messed me up. Mm. Um, I was definitely not pushed into it, but yeah, my psychiatrist didn't know how to taper those things. Yeah. And that's just important to note to all our, all our listeners. There's nothing, there's nothing more dangerous than, um, you know, abruptly stopping prescription drugs, prescription psychiatric drugs. Those withdrawal reactions can, uh, create severe, uh, medical consequences that are, that are potentially life-threatening. So anyone that is listening and is, is thinking about tapering off drugs, make sure that is done under the supervision of a medical professional who's aware of some of the science to do that. So Jesse, you're transitioning then to, um, you know, with a naturopath and you're looking to, you know, alter your, your lifestyle. What was some of the, um, some of the thinking behind it and how that was going to help? How was that communicated to you? It was really not communicate. I was desperate to get my life back and I really drove most of it. Um, I would just try things, try things, try. I mean, I tried 
as many things as I could get my hands on for years and years and years. And if something helped me feel a little bit better, I'd keep doing it. And if it didn't, I wouldn't. Um, but it was that first, it was my psychiatrist saying, look, this doesn't have this conceptualization or these treatments don't have all of the answers. Start looking, uh, somewhere else. And these things are valid. You know, I remember looking up, like, I remember looking up EMDR, like really, early on and seeing like a skeptic's guide to EMDR, EMDR is fake. And like, and then just writing all of like the natural health world off because I saw articles written about it. So my psychiatrist saying, no, you, there could be value in this kind of helped me open that door. And then once that door was open, it was just a lot of experimentation. What did that, what did that look like when you started to do that? What are some of the things that you did? The first thing I did as soon as I could like, reliably get my body around was go to transcendental meditation um mm. they were they're great uh the folks there's this organization called the david lynch foundation i was broke as heck they gave me that training for 20 bucks i applied mm. for a grant they said come on in they sat down with me and showed me how to meditate that helped a lot that and that was a big first step just being able to calm my heart rate calm my breathing and then um and then, you know, the next big step was getting in the gym. Um, I, I changed my diet as quickly as I could. That, that you know, that, that had mixed, you know, it's, it's like diet for me was very subtle um, until you stop your diet and then you realize it's not. And then you go back on it. You're like, oh, yeah, I definitely need to be eating anti-inflammatory <laughs> foods. So... What do you, were you, were there other things that meditation started it and then the diet, um, did you try and what about, cause you had trouble sleeping. Is that correct? Did you, what, what, after meditating, after going through that, did, did that just fall into place? It's still not in place. Amino acids really help the most out of everything. Um, um, I'll say, um, it's, it was so gradual. So, yeah, if we want to, like, talk directly to people, I would say, you know, if you're listening to this, you know, results can be really gradual. Things can take a long time. I didn't know. I thought I might never sleep normally again. But just after years of being off and then starting to introduce things that are good for me and, like, help me calm down little by little by little, it added up. And now I'm, like, you know, getting my life back. So... I think what's really important is to understand how somebody th believes or, or, or thinks about what's happening to them. So ultimately, if we use the word bipolar disorder, it's just language. It's a word. But that language can have power because it, you're then interpreting everything that happens within you through that lens. When you were first provided that diagnosis, how was it communicated to you um, in terms of why you had bipolar disorder and then what you need to do about it. Oh, geez. I mean, I rejected it so hard at the beginning, which might've actually been a problem because I just wanted to go back to work. And this is like why, you know, I come from the other side where I'm like, I needed to sit down and really like acknowledge that something was happening with me because I was like very much in like the self-help, you know, Tony Robbins ish, kind of world of like, I'm going to make my own destiny. And th all this is his language. And 
I'm not really depressed. That's just an idea. That's just a narrative. And I reject it. So I'm just going to go back to work. And I never really took care of myself. So, you know, I don't disagree that that conceptualization can be harmful. But for me, like, so they told me I was bipolar. I didn't believe it. It took me four years. (laughs) I mean, I took the pills, but I didn't totally agree with the diagnosis until like I could, you know, really make it work for myself, to be honest with you. I'm interested in your thoughts on this. Um, yeah, I sent out a tweet not too long ago that the current mental health system treats symptoms without understanding the cause. And so I think one of the things that is critical when we're doing any evaluation is to try to understand all the complex variables interacting with each other that could lead somebody to feel a certain way. What stands out about your story and what you're telling me right now is you're kind of overworked. You were overworked, you were sleep deprived, nutritionally deprived, um, and then your body breaks down. So when I, when I think about labels such as bipolar disorder, if a doctor says, well, listen, you have a chemical imbalance in your brain, and then you require these drugs in order to rebalance those really important chemicals, which will help stabilize mood, that's different than... Hey, listen, Jesse, the way you're living your life right now, um, I'm telling you, you're, you're going you're gonna to break down. You're, you're not going to be able to survive like this. There has to be changes in the way that you live if you want to feel good. Some of these symptoms that you're experiencing are just a direct result of the quality of your, your life. I think that's two different approaches that when you start looking through it through that lens, it completely changes the steps in which you take. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, like we've come a long way in the last 10 years because like what you just said was not like a common thing to say, like workaholism, like people and sleep, like the importance of sleep, like that's really come into mainstream consciousness in just like the last five years, really. When at least, at least in the New York City culture I was around, nobody talked about getting enough sleep being good for your creativity, your brain, your, you know, your longevity as an artist. Um, that was not, it was, I stayed up for four days. How about that? Can you do that? Like I'm, I'm my, my people would equate the ability to, uh, tolerate sleep deprivation as being a better creator, you know? So it would be hard. I like somebody could tell me either of those things back then. I don't think I would listen to either of them, any of them, cause that's just who I am and who I was. So, you know, uh, don't many people see that as a badge of honor, right? When you're working on your craft, there's almost this, I don't want to say that you, you have to, um, to earn it, but people will do that. They'll, they'll drive themselves into the brink of complete exhaustion just to say how many hours, how hard they worked on something. So they, people truly understand your emotional connection to the piece you're creating. Do you feel that way? Yeah. And commitment and and honestly like in my world you had to do that if you wanted to like keep getting those callbacks that was expected you know yeah. so yep. so it's the impact of of culture so it's the culture in which you in which you were working in which you were living now in the medical world th- that exact behavior could be viewed as a as symptom of a bipolar illness oh you could go a couple days without without sleep you know did you experience high energy where you know did you have some flight ideas? 
And the, there's, there's things that are a bit general like that for me, because I think a lot of passionate people who can get like hyper-focused on something that's of great interest to them combined with that culture, people can present that se- themselves that way yeah, it's and it called can be a, celebrated. It's called the second wind, right? You get to the point where you've, you're so tired and then all of a sudden that second wind ke- uh, kicks in and then you can work for another couple hours and you just kind of go with it. Yeah. And, and the question is, is hypomania, which can drive that, if, if we're going to put a label on, is hypomania a symptom of an illness or is it part of kind of the diversity of human presentation that exists? Highly accomplished people would probably um, recognize that symptom as something that, that if we want to, I hate calling the word symptom, or that response as part of their success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I want to go with it. I want, I want people to think about, I, I would love for the conversation to turn to kind of like how we're talking about autism now and, and neurodiversity and have that be also in mood disorder. I think that's a much more empowering conversation. There's no reason you can't come to the same places as far as treatment and management from an empowering conversation, from an empowering place. Um, but what what I hear sometimes from the in the anti-psychiatry movement is just, it's all bullshit. It's all fake. Don't even think about it. Like, and I'm like, I don't, there's something here. And when I like, when I, when I connect with people at the national, um, at at NAMI, the national Alliance of mental illness, and I'm around other bipolar people who have similar stories, there's a, there there, you know, and you can call it what you want. And I think as a, as a mental health provider myself, I want to help empower patients to create those definitions for themselves so they can see what works. Try on different hats. Try on different contexts. Maybe create and, and embed in different cultures who can see these things differently and find what works for you because that's not going to be the same for everybody. Yeah, I think that anti-psychiatry movement is more about uh, the prescribed harm uh, community. So, um, you know, my connection with people is not that the I- there's not that there's not an idea of diversity of human experience and and the fact that bipolar exists, like manic depressive illness is something that can be traced back historically. Like that exists as well as I think just, uh, you know, variations of that or on the spectrum. So if that human diversity, that people are different, they present in different ways and you may need to seek out the help of a healthcare provider in order to live your most optimal life, that I think we can all agree with the bullshit about this that really pisses people off is, hey, we've got this identified discrete medical illness and you need to be on drugs for life. And that's where we're not grounded in, in, in science and the outcomes worsen under that conceptualization. I, I, I don't disagree with that. I just, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't get stuck there because I'm around and creating so many other conversations that are like, leaping towards the future and i think the way to get there is to like invite people into those conversations and show people that are living fully and also know that they have something to manage um and can also like talk about these things openly um and and can also be responsible for their own self-conception of what's happening and that's what i want to be a part of i think we i mean i don't i don't think you know getting into a rhetorical battle with big pharma i don't think we're going to win they have a little bit of a budget Uh, a little bit so sometimes like i feel kind of out of place uh in these conversations because 
Like I, there's a, there's a point to that. I think it's really important for people to be critical of the medications they're given and the diagnoses, like really critical. I think people need to sit down and think about it and think about if that works for them or if they're looking for something else. I think that has to be up to a person. I think they need, people need to have that time. I think it's good to have that conversation. But for me, when I'm doing patient advocacy work and I'm trying to connect with other people who maybe just got home from the hospital, I don't want to get stuck there because there's so much more work to do with, you know, about our experiences and emotional health and relational health and finding that routine and like all of these other things that I'm just more interested in pushing forward because because we need that. And that's going to yeah. help people. Hey, Jesse, I feel like this is a great opportunity for you to tell us about mental health media and what you are advocating for. So, yeah, I started in 2019 a nonprofit project called Mental Health Media where, we, where I talk to patients who have recovery stories that aren't what people think about. Where, you know, I think in the mainstream, people have heard the story, I was so depressed, I went to the doctor, I took these pills, and now I'm okay. Well, that's not how most people I connect with in the advocacy world get better. Mm -hmm. Some of them are on medication, some of them are not, but there's always different components. There's a self-care component, there's a social component, there's a trauma or like putting your past in context component. There's all of these different things and stories that are dynamic recovery stories that are about personal exploration. And so I want to put that project, Mental Health Media, you can check it out, mentalhealthmedia.org, is about talking to patients about those stories and that, that are dynamic. And it's not one size fits all. You know, it's, it's so personal. Um, so in order to honor those stories and for people who are new to the conversation to think, okay, what might that look like for me? Like, I know nobody could tell me what it's going to be, but you might hear a spark in some of those conversations. Mm -hmm. And that's what, what I was interested in doing. Um, since I've been in grad school, I've put that on hiatus for a hot minute and I'm starting a new podcast. It's going to be, uh, actually, I'm not going to tell you what it's called, but there's a new, similar, <laughs> a new similar podcast. That's a little bit more, a little bit less focused, a little bit more general, a little bit more easy, but around similar conversations. Well, we'll look forward for that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll send you a link. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you guys could be on that one. Love to. Yeah, definitely love to. So one of the things that strikes me about that during the time period that you were, you, you were so creative and watching the film while well, I watched punk Jews and it's just, I loved it. Um, but I don't know, like I, I, I think in metaphors and I'm sitting there watching it and there was a story. I don't know if you remember that the Cal who was, um, he was abused as a child at one point during the movie, he says he couldn't share with his parents because he was uncomfortable going through authority figures Anything um, that went against the culture had to be hidden. Through 42 episodes of our podcast, I've learned that this, this idea that we have to hide things continues to happen on a larger scale with mental health. And I think what you're advocating for is, you know, there's nothing you don't hide. We, there are solutions that you're not thinking of. You listen to people's stories, how they got through it. But as long as there's a problem not talked about, it simply doesn't exist. And this is where I get emotional and angry sometimes with mental health, um, the system. So much is going on in the mental health community that should come to surface. And I think you're, you're, you're attempting to get that out. But when it does, it's often attacked or put down, um, almost like holistic approaches, vitamin D, diet, exercise, meditation. It brings the broader question of what is the responsibility of communities, of government, of even big pharma, that to let these issues emerge without any shame. 
Um, I mean, you have any thoughts on that? Because it seems like I looked at your site. I, uh, I've listened to your stories. I listened to podcasts. And it seems like that's what you're doing. You're getting these stories out um, and giving people alternatives. But it's it's like an upward battle. And as you said, Big Pharma has so much money. So I'm assuming it's, you know, holistic approaches aren't going to sit there and advertise. And they're not going to sit there and put things out there. So what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, thank you for looking at all my stuff. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the feedback. Um, you know, one thing I'm speaking at the, uh, national Alliance of mental illness. We're having a, uh, a conference here, um, in September and I'm going to be speaking with here in Olympia, Washington. Um, I'm going to be speaking with my, ra my rabbi, Johanna Kinberg. Um, and we're talking about that, like specifically how can communities support people with severe mental illness and also just not just and just in general just for general emotional health um and a lot of it is just being with it you know i think that's the first thing um in especially in spiritual communities there's a lot to be learned um the first thing I would maybe the most important thing is realize you don't know what you don't know, especially in the Jewish community. We love giving each other advice and that can be disastrous if you're talking about something you don't know what you're talking about and it's about somebody's health. Mm -hmm. So I'll be talking about that a little bit. Um, and I'll also say like as a former internet marketer, like yes, pharma has, uh, pharma has a bunch of money. Um, but they cannot compete with the viral power of just people telling their stories. Like it's a million to one power. Yeah. Like it's so wasteful to like hire an advertising agency to try to push a narrative or something. If people like the, if you look at the statistics of how many people are like seeing a naturopath right now, like it's people are going to naturopaths. People are finding relief with this stuff. Um, especially when it comes to mental health, it absolutely drives me bonkers uh to hear when people are like oh yeah vitamins don't work i saw this study i saw this study that's like looked at this gnc like hyper masculine ego xxx and look this stuff is fake so therefore you know fish oil and vitamin d don't work <laughs> you know like i hear that a lot right <laughs> and it's obscene like i would say look at the data like go to google scholar i mean i wish there was more data and more but there's a lot there's way more than people think on the mediterranean diet like i have gone through how many meta analysis meta analyses of mediterranean diet studies there's thousands of studies that show that it helps with depression and the same with exercise um, and everything this stuff is real it works if you're looking for another way to like figure out how to get better or you just want another tool to use there's a lot of tools out there Jesse, we interviewed Harvard-trained psychiatrist Dr. Chris Palmer, who, under, who, who's, who believes that psychiatric illnesses are metabolic disorders and is having some really profound effects on the treatment of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder with just a ketogenic diet. So shifting, shifting metabolically. So there is, there's a lot of scientific support to everything you just said. If you'd want to do the work, um, it's just not mainstream in, a, in Western cultures, United States in particular. You know, we are in a pill-popping prescription drug culture. And there is an underswell, uh, I think, movement that is driven by social media and the individual's desire to feel better 
to counter a lot of the narratives that mm -hmm. have existed for decades uh, in, in this country. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, so the way I found that psychiatrist that you're like, I need that, that phone number, uh, you know, a, a, a direct to the patients out there. The way I found my psychiatrist, I, re I reached out, I had my dad reach out to research scientists at Stanford directly um, who are doing innovative work on like targeting glutamate and bipolar disorder. And um, they gave my dad a number and that person knew, you know, they were also a researcher who like looks at all of the major research. So when research comes out of what does fish oil do? What does, you know, having a balanced diet do? What does all of the different things? It was just an entirely different conversation. And I, I do think it'll get there. I think it is getting there. Um, but we just have to keep, keep on keeping on. When I, when I started this, when I started this journey 10 years ago, none of this was out there. The only thing I could find, because I was looking for alternatives. There was like one article in the New York Times about a bipolar person who quit caffeine and moved to Buenos Aires and like, <laughs> and like just chilled out and was able to recover. I'm like, well, fuck, I don't know if I go to Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's out there, right? Like for better or worse, the quality is up and down and there's some wacky stuff that I don't totally love uh that that becomes you know a little bit more politically with the far right i don't love that stuff but um it's out there and people are learning and um yeah i think we're making progress i don't want to like shut down how much progress we've made so so quickly yeah it's a good point a lot of ways to go there's so much to so much more work to do and I didn't realize the connection that we started off this conversation talking about the 1800s and hand washing. You know, maybe 40 years from now, we're going to look back at this period and go like, what the hell were we doing to ourselves? Like, it's so no obvious. Your physical and mental health are so connected. That's Duh. what I mean. Like, sometimes the, the solution is, is a simple change, right? Yeah. So, Well, it goes back to the article. And it was a great way to start out this podcast because when you start stepping outside what is the prevailing narrative it's almost like it's heresy you know you are you are putting yourself at risk for attacks because as if what is the established medical guidelines or treatment or thinking at a given time can't go unchallenged mm -hmm. and that is that is um the opposite of everything that i have learned about what scientific inquiry is you know it's, it has to be the openness to to debate and it has to be learning from each other, questioning the narrative. And that's the only way that I think you can begin to really innovate in, mm -hmm. in any type of scientific field is through, you know what you learn, you know what you know now, how can you build off that? What doesn't work? What we don't know? And when it comes to, to mental health and psychiatry in general with standardized treatments, boy, the outcomes are poor, really poor. I, and I, if we can transition, you know, Jesse, I'd love to know about your experience in graduate school right now. If you can actually put on your critical hat of uh, everything that you're learning in, the, in your graduate program, you strike me as a real independent thinker. So I'm sure that there's lots of opportunities for you to challenge professors or what you're reading in a particular text. What is your, what's your uh, observation on the, on the training for, to become a therapist right now? Um, so I, so I'm at Antioch University, Seattle, um, and I think they do a lot of great work. I was, a, you know, an activist for a long time before it. So social justice conversations are not new to me. 
and they're new and for a lot of folks. So my experience is kind of like, okay, I'm picking up good things, but uh, sometimes it's a little bit stuck in first gear for me. Um, that said, I love family therapy and where it is right now. It is the most holistic conceptualization of mental illness um, where people are, you know, clinicians are allowed to have interventions like go walk in nature and go on a date without your kids and, <laughs> you know, go swimming in the Bahamas and like take care of yourself. Like, like people think way outside the box. Um, and I love that. I love that so much. Um, it's like very much, like even like the mental health counselor degree that we uh, have at my school is much more limited. It's like about you and your parents and how you grew up and your mind. In family therapy, it's about your relationships. It's about your community. It's about society. It's about culture, like you were saying. Um, it's about, you know, how all of these things intersect uh, um, and 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 make you feel how you feel and and how recontextualizing that and creating your own story around all of those elements um can work to heal people so you know i like i like it you know sometimes it's a little stuck in first gear but uh, that's okay um i'm still able to like do my own research and my own work and my own thinking i've recently been uh meditating on wisdom and just kind of asking for for wisdom and a number of books have just been thrown in my path over the past six months or so. And it's drawn me down an entire different direction. Me about too. I got Calvin and Hobbes. What did you get? <laughs> <laughs> well, mine's a little bit different. I got books on like energy healing and oh, really? uh, consciousness and uh, spirituality and uh, frequency of energy. And it, it, it's amazing how sometimes things are just put in your path that expand your mind. And we kind of discussed here on this earlier on this episode where, you know, we're just talking about the, the limitations that can, that can exist and having some humility and accepting that we don't know what we don't know. And, uh, you know, we are all limited by, you know, what our minds do create and the stories that our minds create and what's in front of us in, in this current culture. But when you kind of take a step back with humility and you can think about uh, that there's so much for human evolution to, to be able to take giant leaps forward and steps forward that then you just become more open-minded because there are, there are people that you will come across in your own life who will have an energy about them and an experience about them that seems to demonstrate tremendous wisdom as if they're just an older soul. And so I don't think you can ever separate when we talk about our own experience on earth from things like purpose or spirituality or, or new ways of thinking, whether that's energy or consciousness. I know that there's new innovative treatments around psychedelics, which seem to bring about these awakenings for, for people. Um, I'm just curious to know you, you were, you grew up in a, in a spiritual community as, as a Jewish man. I'm just wondering about how you might integrate your own spirituality and, um, other possible ideas into like creating a life that's worth living. Hmm. Well, there's not a lot I could say about that that wouldn't be diagnosable. Um, I will just say, like, I I, I feel on, on the daily a spiritual experience um, in many different ways in a very like visceral sensory way that I am sure 
uh, if I went to a psychiatrist's office and told them all of those things, I would get put on 12 medicines again. So, um, that's telling. Yeah. I, mean, that's, yeah, I think that's I, all I'm going to say. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to jump in here. That shouldn't be the case, I'm, right? I'm, right. I am. See, to me, the, the fact that you can observe that and, <laughs> and not say it says that like the psychiatrist can't make that diagnosis. But I had a, I had a young lady who was just, uh, um, I did a clinical interview once and she got identified with a bipolar diagnosis just because she felt like she had a specific purpose and she was spiritual and she said she believed she had a purpose on this life and it led her to do certain things. None of them were dangerous. And just mentioning spiritual connection or purpose was enough to meet some criteria for mania. And I've been talking to Sean and Kelly just recently often about manifesting and some spiritual uh, kind of awakenings and growth that I'm personally having and the importance of like like-minded people or laws of attraction. Now they look at me like I'm crazy. Wait, have you been getting text messages that say manifest? I'm sorry. I, 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 I silenced. Uh, <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? I silenced my brother on uh, text messages. I'll look at it like once every two or three there days you go. just to catch up. See, <laughs> see their, their frequency isn't as high as mine. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's just, it's that idea. I mean, it's, it's an open-mindedness and awareness and allowance that I think is really, really healthy and needed in our, in our, in our culture. That is just, the fact that you're, you're afraid to even say some of the things around it because of how others would judge you is telling. Um, I just haven't thought about how I want to say that, uh, talk about my inner spiritual life publicly yet. And I don't want to like work that out. I, I tend, I'm a little bit verbose, so I don't want to like just say everything that <laughs> everything all at the same time. But, um, you know, I do want to say, like, so, like I agree, and some of that manifesting stuff could be really nasty for people who are, like, in whatever you want to call it, the creative folks who need to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. um, because if you think that everything is your manifestation and you're having a bad time, that can really create this feedback loop of people feeling like they are responsible for feeling terrible when really they just don't have the tools. They don't have the ways to think about it. It just goes straight into a feedback loop of I'm depressed. I'm sick. It's my fault. I just need to manifest harder. I just need mm. to have better thoughts when I can't control my thoughts. And there's like becomes this real rigid. And I was in that when I started this journey because I was doing all the self-help stuff and there really wasn't like a way out. So I would love to see like that kind of stuff or that spiritual stuff or even like that Tony Robbins thing or coaching, whatever you want to call it, but also like it's a little bit more gentle, especially for neurodiverse folks. Yeah, it, it's interesting. You make it, it, an excellent point about how certain ideas when uh, presented in the wrong way, even, <laughs> even if it was me. See, he's listening to you, Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> Because I'm you. with you 100% and he's listening. <laughs> I, I'm a very good listener, Sean. <laughs> Is it hard to um, get him to listen? Oh no, my I, God. Think, I think he's a good listener when he's in a session with a client. But when it comes to his brother and friends, you know what? He can be outspoken. <laughs> I'm getting better at it. He's getting better. I'm working at it. He's manifesting. He's, no, it, it takes work and effort and all that stuff tied to it. Because if you are going to um, enter into a meditative practice... There's no doubt that you're going to undergo experiences that are kind of foreign to what you were experiencing before when you were caught up in your mental world all the time. And um, 
I think people can describe it in different ways. Maybe it's a, a connection to the universe in a different way. Maybe there's a stillness about you. You can have really strong positive emotions of elation and gratitude and love that you, that are experienced from that. Can you can you at least tell me a little bit about what your experience has been with meditation? Because you did talk about that aiding in your recovery. Yeah, sure. And yeah, I mean, and and that's something that uh, the folks over at uh, you know the TM uh, clinics or whatever the med center they talk about. Like some people do see things that are like emotions that are that you haven't accessed before. Like, and they will people will like vi have visual representations of inner worlds. For some people, it's sound. Um, for some people to have a feeling, sometimes it's emotion, sometimes it's a combination, sometimes it's like a dreamlike state. Um, yeah, I will say like definitely I had some uh, some some visual um, events uh, when I first started meditating. And um, initially it was really just to kind of calm me down. But now that I've kind of been through this, um, the meditation helps, everything helps. Um but I do. I mean, I think about stillness. I think about gratitude. I think about just radiating love around the people that I am, um, that I'm with all the time. Like I think on that spiritual realm um, constantly and um, trying to find the best in people, so on and so forth. And most of that stuff, honestly, is just from going through this complete hell of an experience. And I remember people telling me that when I started that, you know, this could make you a more spiritual person going through this kind of losing everything um, can bring you gifts at the end. And it made me so mad. And I found it so invalidating. But now that I've been through it and I'm on the other side, it's really real. You know, after you've given given a second chance at life and like you do feel like you're you're playing with house money a little bit and you're just like, how can I make the best of my time? What can I do to to make the world a better place? What can I do just to make my, my world a better place, my day a better place, the people in my life? You know, I sit down and I just be with that. And I, you know, just try to walk that path as part of my routine, just like all the other stuff I do. So Jesse, we were talking about purpose. Do you feel like you've found yours? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if I can just help a couple people find a little bit of easier footing after they have a, a psychiatric emergency to, to figure out how to live their lives. Like if that's one or two people I've done my job, you know? Um, and I think it'll probably be more than that, but the purpose that I feel to do that work, um, you know, it's just, you know, it gets me out of bed every day and it makes me want to do the work I'm doing in grad school. And, um, yeah, I don't know of a better a better way to spend the rest of my life, the rest of my days on this planet. Has it been your recovery that got you back to grad school or was it experiences throughout your life? Um it was I mean, I you know, a lot of it if 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 I if television existed in a place where you could like do it for 6 hours a day, I might go back to that. Um but that's not a that's not something that's accessible i can't i can't work a 16 hour day anymore and expect to stay well and be the person i want to be and have the life i want so a lot of it was selfishly trying to figure out a world and a life that worked for me based on what i now know about myself 
one of those things being I can't, I need to sleep like maybe more than most people um, that I know. Um, so I don't know what got, I mean, that was a piece of it. I just, when, when I'm in those spaces, when I'm in like recovery spaces, when I'm at NAMI and I see people, I see families, I see families of people who have lost somebody. I mean, it just gets very real. And the, the work that I have to do becomes very obvious. You know, uh, I've been through this. I can help a couple people. Let's go, you know. On the conversation of purpose, Jesse, I think there's something I personally can learn from you. Um, my purpose has been to bring a similar message, but I've kind of been hard hitting with it. Um, you know, I took this past, this, this past year just to take ideas that I think are harmful. And I've been almost borderline aggressive about it. Uh, you know, I think it comes from decades of seeing the the harm that these drug treatments or these diagnoses have 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 provided to to even children and and teens and, and families and I, you know some of that anger I've kind of fueled it to almost be in your face about certain concepts with the goal of just trying to eliminate them as scientifically sound ideas and. Within that, I think sometimes I shut some, I, I shut people out of the, of the conversation. You've been able to successfully build uh, a, a Twitter following with, with I think, um, a much more effective uh, approach that I, I have to begin to, to adopt. Um, you mentioned it earlier, but I'm, I'm looking for some advice from you. If you're going, if, if the purpose is about expanding the conversation and getting people to, to listen, coming from a place of, of true compassion and, uh, you know, intention, what would you, what would you suggest about that, about the approach through, through social media driven approach? How do you go about doing it? Well, first, I really appreciate that. Thank you for saying that. And it's something I've, and it's not something I do successfully all the time. And if you go back and look at some old tweets, you will find me raging about psychiatry. Um, so you know, it, I, I think about this stuff and it's always changing. Um, I, you know, the first thing I would say is to some degree, you have to get ready for less engagement because social media loves rage. It loves that anger. You're going to do better if you like have self-righteous statements that people can retweet because people get, they get that dopamine hit. They get that adrenaline rush, that self-righteousness machine just gets people going. And if you're talking to an audience that's already not feeling good, it's like the one thing in your day, well, at least I can give it to the psychiatry or my doctors or the police or whoever is, you know, has their boot on my neck, right? Like I just want to get that rage out, but I don't know. Does that help people find solutions to get better? I don't know. I don't know. You know, for me, I, I want to find a way to just to, to find that person that's got out of the hospital. I want to find that family who's nervous about losing their child or their children who's worried about losing their parent and are looking for something else. Um, I think there's value. I'll be honest. I think there's a value to being angry on the internet because it gets attention to some issues that really need attention. But sometimes that goes against helping people find their autonomy, their inner purpose, their own self, their own life, you know, 
that I there it's it's really easy, especially when you're not feeling good, to create your own identity of being hurt, you know, and not being proactive and being on the receiving end of suffering, which is a hundred percent real. But for me and for people I'm around, I want to create my own narrative as someone who's been through the situation. And that's not as a victim. That's as some, as a healer, that's as as a community builder, um, that's as a teacher. So, but to get people to that conversation, you might need a little fireworks, you know, so <laughs> it's tough. It's a balance. Maybe Roger's approach has worked to, to get it going, but it, it's time for him to show who he truly is because he's not always angry. He's actually can be an enjoyable person to be around. It, it comes in, in short spurts, but <laughs> maybe he can adjust his, uh, his personality a little bit through uh, social media. Yeah, it almost becomes like um, an outlet. So I, I think I... Most of my, my day is working directly with clients and that's, that's my passion. And I feel very strongly for them. And so when I see some of the damaging ideas or treatments they've had to go through, my outlet is to, okay, maybe, maybe this helps someone else out there. I can put this in the form of a tweet and send it out or a podcast episode and, you know, let that emotion be genuine and real but at, 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 I found that, you know, sometimes, you know, you just, you, you lose followers. You get a lot of people who, who misunderstand what you're, what you're saying because you just, the platform doesn't allow you to get in depth. That's why one of the reasons we started this podcast. Or they've just adopted the idea of things that I think are, are, are harmful in society. So they've already adopted that, that idea. I don't like the idea of mental illness. I don't like thinking about people in that way. I don't think it's accurate. I'm more into diversity of, of, of people and, and, the ch- and normalizing the challenges that exist in life. So sometimes people will attach to the idea of, of a mental illness and then they live by it. And so, then, so I think their reactions to me are often, you know, as if I'm invalidating their experience or diminishing what they went through. And that's not my intent. That's mm-hmm. not, I care very much about how do you live the best optimal life possible for you. And Jesse did an amazing job of telling that story today. I, I don't know. I didn't know what to expect, you know, bringing, on, bringing you on because we never, we never met you. But I, I walk away really impressed um, as an independent thinker, um, how you're able to articulate your story, how there's balance to it. Um, you, you find a way to stay away from the extremes and be able to find a middle path that is both compassionate and science-based with the ultimate goal of trying to find ways to help people. Um, I know you don't want to, uh, to mention your podcast now, but when it does come out, you, you definitely got listeners here because um, I want to hear more of, of what you have to say. Where can people find you and get in touch with you so when you are ready to to, to go out on the airwaves there with your, your podcast, people can listen. Yeah, for sure. Um, and thank you so much for all those kind words and, and seeing the work and my conversation as I do. There's not a lot of people I could share that with. Um, so it's very special uh, to be seen like that. So thank you. It really means a lot to me. Um, See, so yeah, I'm on social media. I'm Zookman, Z-O-O-K-M-A-N-N. Um, uh, at Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I'm working on a new website now. 
um, that'll have everything in an email list, so on and so forth. Um, that should be up in a couple of weeks. But right now, Twitter is probably the best spot. Um, and yeah, like like you're saying, I want to do a podcast because these things are nuanced and people do kind of have to hear and feel you. Um, and honestly, like when I'm working with clients, I don't I don't want to tell people to go on Twitter because that's the you know that's a nasty emotional manipulating machine. I, I don't think unlike what what other companies do who manipulate your emotions, you know, like, so yeah, we got all got to find our path, whether it's the middle path or whatever path, like I care about it, people being at your path. Um, and we can, I think we could all do that and we can do that together. Um, and, and I, I think this is kind of like where a lot of the patient movement is on to is like thinking about mental illness as diversity instead. Um, the other thing that I, I think, I see from the patient perspective on social media it that's that can be harmful is especially like on sites like patient advocacy sites like the mighty or just like in general is just people fighting to be seen by the outside world you know um and to have their struggles seen on social media when people aren't ready to see them so a lot of patients are like it's so hard to be live with serious depression it's so hard to leave live with this with schizophrenia this mental illness with bipolar disorder why can't the world see my oppression like other um like 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 how we see other issues and they get people get stuck and it's just every day why can't people see me why can't people see me and you know my, my friend nikki lynette um posted recently she's done with that you could check her out nikki lynette she's got a a play on surviving suicide she does totally uh you know she's found her own path she is not she she's not a big uh, pharma person she does her own way of found her own way to recover from ptsd she's not doing that she's not looking for you know for to be seen by people who aren't ready to see we need to start seeing each other we need to start being in community where i can see you i can see your progress i can see your trials and tribulations and journeys just like you can see mine and not look to that outside world and and once we can do that the outside world is going to see it because they're going to be like oh those people are getting doing better oh that person was really sick and now they're like starting a new career and once people see that they're going to want it and i don't know big pharma and 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 no one can compete with that well said mm-hmm. a lot of wisdom on this podcast Jesse, you got to come on with us again once you launch uh, the media and the, the podcast. You got to come back on. We need to have another conversation. It's a lot of fun today. I would love that. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, it's really been a joy. I really appreciate it. Appreciate all of you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank all you. the best. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.